0: Over the last few months, I've been preaching uh, from these uh, passages in Matthew's Gospel um, called the Sermon on the Mount. And so far, Jesus, we've looked at the Beatitudes. And then Jesus has been speaking recently about how the standard of our behavior has got to be far greater than that of the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the tax collectors. Not the tax collectors. That's a parable. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Um, Partly, uh, this highlights to us uh, the fact that we've all sinned. Um, We all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 tells us that, doesn't it? Um, We all fall short of God's standards. In other words, no one can impress God by their good deeds, by the things that they do. Um, And partly that's what Jesus is wanting to highlight in these passages. Partly he's wanting to show up the hypocrisy um, and double standards of the religious leaders who were very concerned with what they looked like on the outside, um, but they weren't able to match that on what they were like on the inside and they kept coming up with all sorts of twisted um, ways to be able to say that they kept God's laws whilst they totally ignored um, the spirit of what God was wanting uh, their lives to be like and Jesus then has gone on to give a number of practical examples as to how this has played out. So in recent weeks we've looked at uh, issues of uh, murder and anger um, and adultery, lust and divorce um, now, of course, in all of these things, we, we are aware of our sinfulness. We're aware of just our inadequacy on this. And, and just, oh, we echo with the disciples in Matthew nineteen twenty five when they say, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? The answer that Jesus gives in that passage is, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so, he's wanting us to come to that point of trusting totally in God. But he's also obviously showing us what a godly life looks like. And for those of us who do have God's spirit to empower us to live a godly life, we can be shaped and we can be sanctified by getting hold of this teaching that he's bringing. So today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 33 onwards. And we'll read it now. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. Simply let to your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So this passage that we're looking at today is about swearing of oaths, uh, about telling the truth, um, doing what you've said you will do. And I guess in one way it might seem like quite a minor topic. Jesus has just been looking at uh, kind of huge topics, murder, anger, adultery, lust, divorce. And now he comes to this passage, swearing of oaths, being honest. And um, we might think, well, it's not as much of a big deal, but I believe we need to come to the point today of seeing just how an important an issue this really is, and how integrity and honesty and truthfulness and keeping your word is in God's kingdom. Yet again, just in the same way as when we've looked at issues of lust, um, issues of divorce, um, we see that society has moved a long, long way from uh, what God's standards are and that he lays out in the Bible. And the danger can always be that we end up being more shaped by the world than we end up being shaped by the word. But let's look again at this passage and try and understand what Jesus is talking about because even this passage itself can be very misunderstood. So in verse 33, Jesus is uh, saying, you've heard um, that it was said, do not break your oath but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. Um, Jesus is quoting what people of the day may well have heard it being said. It isn't an exact quote from the Old Testament, because if you've been here previously, you'll have heard how we've said um, the Old Testament law, the Torah, was kind of added to by an oral law, a kind of just sayings that were, that were um, brought about by the rabbis and the teachers of the day. And kind of all mixed together, obviously, people didn't have their own copy of the scriptures to read. And so it got quite confusing as to what was part of the Old Testament scriptures and what was just part of this oral law um, that, was, that was said. So Jesus is saying, well, you've heard that this was said. Now, it's not an exact quote, but it's pretty much what it says in certain passages in the Old Testament. I'll just read one of them, because uh, there's quite a few. Um, Deuteronomy 23 and verse 21 Says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, if you don't make a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Basically, uh, what this passage and other passages are saying are, if you make a promise ...to some, someone before God, if you make an oath or a vow, then you have to keep it. Making an oath is when, is when you make a statement and you call on God's name... ...or something sacred or something important to you to stress how truthful you're being. So, in a court of law, if, uh, if you have to go to court to give evidence for something... ...then uh, people historically swear on the Bible to tell the truth. So they get the Bible, they put their hand on it, and they say, I swear to tell the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's making an oath. They're swearing it on God's name, they're swearing it on the Word of God, uh, and they're saying, this is emphasising the importance of how truthful I'm being, and the weight of that. Um, People uh, today... Swear on other things. You still hear it. It's very common today, isn't it? Um, People might say something like, oh, I I swear on... If they're saying something, I swear on my mother's life. um, They say that. Something that's important to them. Maybe they're not even uh, particularly God-fearing, but they say, you know, this is what's important to me, so I'm going to swear it on my mother's life. Um, And uh, other, other young people might just sort of stress that they're telling the truth, or they say they're telling the truth by going, yeah, I swear, I swear. You know, it's, it's emphasizing that. This is, this is really the truth. I'm not lying to you about this. Um, Jesus, at first sight in this passage, seems to be telling people not to do that. Not to, not to swear uh, before God at all, and, and just to say yes or no. A lot of Christians, uh, historically, have taken this passage as meaning that if they ever get summoned to court, or happen to be up in court, um, then they shouldn't... Uh, actually swear to tell the truth on the Bible. And some, and some Quakers, for example, have refused to do that. They say, well, I'm not swearing on the Bible because of this passage. This is what it says. Um, in one sense, it's very commendable um, that they want to obey God. But actually, I don't believe that's what Jesus was talking about here. Because, in fact, people throughout the Bible did swear by God's name to tell the truth. Paul did it. The Apostle Paul did it. And you think... If that's what Jesus was meaning here, um, and Paul knew that, he wouldn't do it. But he did. In 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 2, and verse 5, he says, You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. And, and again, he's, he's stressing something. He's saying, we never did that. We never um, tried to trick you. We never tried to use flattery on you. He says, I'm stressing that that's the truth by saying God is our witness. So he's invoking the name of God. He's using the name of God to stress that he is being truthful. So Paul does it. Um, God himself does it. Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that God did it. And quite a lot in the Old Testament you'll see this. Um, But Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13 The writer says, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. So God um, is obviously the highest power. He can't swear by something higher, something more important. So he swears by himself and he says, I surely will bless you. I surely will give you lots of descendants. He's stressing it. It really is true. You can really get hold of this and believe it. I swear it by myself. And Jesus himself um, did it. Um, So if that's what he's meaning, he's going against his own teaching. When he was before um, the courts, when he's been arrested in Matthew 26 and verse 63, he's before the Sanhedrin, uh, let's read from 62. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What's this testimony that men are, these men are bringing against you? He said, but Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. At this point Jesus said, no, 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 I'm not doing that. It's not right to swear before God. He didn't do that. He said, yes, it is as you say. So, He's charged, swear under oath before the living God, and he says, yes, it is as you say. So Jesus isn't, if Jesus isn't commending us uh, and commanding us to swear on oath, what does he mean? Well, a couple of points. For a start, he was pointing out, as he did about the divorce laws that we looked at before, that it's only because of our sinfulness, human sinfulness, that these oaths are needed at all. It's only that's the only reason that we've got this legislation. If everyone kept their promises, did what they said they were going to do, then there would be no need to swear by God to emphasize that you're speaking the truth. So you'd just be saying, well, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Or this is the truth. And there would be no need to stress it because, uh, you know, everyone would just believe it. Even when God does it himself, when he swears by, him, uh, by himself that he's going to bless Abraham... The only reason he's doing that is because of our tendency to, to say, oh, we don't believe you, God. You know, Abraham could have said, I'm not so sure about this. In fact, there was doubt in Abraham's mind. He said, no, I swear it by myself. I will bless you. I will give you descendants. It's only because of our sinfulness that this is needed at all. But secondly, Jesus had seen what the Pharisees were very clever at doing finding loopholes for the law so that they could say they weren't guilty. And so what they'd done was they developed this system. And this system meant that depending on what you swore by meant that you either had to keep your promise and do what you'd said, or you didn't. If you swore by some things, you did. And if you swore by some things, you didn't. For example, one rabbi said, if you swear by Jerusalem, you don't have to keep your promise. But if you swear towards Jerusalem, you do have to keep your promise. So it's like this tiny little distinction. You know, people say, I swear by Jerusalem I'll do that. Oh, well, that's all right. It might sound good, but actually I don't have to keep my promise in that case. But if I happen to say, I swear towards Jerusalem, yes, you do have to keep your promise. And this was a very common thing. Jesus picks it up in this passage and also in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23 and verse 16, he's addressing the Pharisees directly on this issue. He says in verse 16 of Matthew 23, "'Woe to you, blind guides! "'You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing.'" In other words, you don't have to keep it. You don't have to do it. "'But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. "'You blind fools! "'Which is greater, the gold or the temple which makes the gold sacred?' You also say, oh, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. He's pointing out, it's hypocritical. He's saying it all goes back to God. And that's what he's saying in this passage in Matthew 5 as well. He says, um, don't swear either by heaven, for it's God's throne. He's, so if people are saying, oh, if you swear by heaven, you don't, have to, you don't have to keep it. You don't have to keep your vow. And he's saying, no, it's God's throne. Oh, if you swear by earth, no, he's saying that's his footstool. By Jerusalem, no, that's the city of the great king. And he's saying, don't just swear by your head. He says, you can't do it. You, you can't even um, make one hair white or black. It's God who decides that. So he's saying, all of these things, you're coming up with these little games, these little rules, that only you know when you're going, ha-ha, we don't have to keep that. He's saying, look, all of these things, you are swearing by God. Because God is involved in all of those. And you are bound by your word. You are bound by it. See, the Pharisees knew that they were bound if they swore by God's name, but they were just coming up with all of these different things. He's saying everything ultimately comes from God. These Pharisees, these men, weren't interested in telling the truth. They weren't interested in keeping promises. They were just playing games with God. And God will not be mocked. Now, we can do similar things, can't we? Let's have a look at this cartoon um, that we've got here. There's a guy... In, uh, in court, and it says, let's try it again. He's, he's swearing an oath on the Bible, and this time, don't cross your fingers. So we can do the same thing. From childhood, we learn that crossing our fingers means you don't have to do what you say. You know, childhood games in the playground, you say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm telling the truth here, you've got your fingers crossed behind your back. Children know that's what it means. If I cross my fingers, I don't have to tell the truth. If I say I'm going to do something, but I cross my fingers, I don't have to do it. It's exactly the sort of games that the Pharisees were playing. Instead, Jesus is saying to us, just be honest. If you say yes, let it mean yes. If you say no, let it mean no. In other words, tell the truth. Do what you say you will do. And as I've said, we don't see a lot of that in society, do we? It starts from the youngest age excuses for not doing your homework. You know, you, you come up with some excuse for not doing, like, your homework. There's common ones, aren't there? Like, um, oh, the dog ate it. Or, uh, oh, I was walking to school and it was a really windy day and it just blew out of my hand. So I've not got it. Um, there's a few bizarre ones as well. The Daily Telegraph did a list of, uh, of, of good excuses for, for uh, not doing your homework. These are some of the most bizarre ones. My goldfish ate it. <laughs> um, I left it in the sun too long, and the ink faded. I'm not sure that can be in this country. Um, this is a good. One. I was walking through the park, and a bee stung me. So I ran to save myself, and I dropped my homework. And my favourite one of all, I put it in the fridge so I would remember it when I got the milk out for my cereal. But I had toast that morning. excuses about not, and, and not telling the truth. Politicians try and find clever ways not to do what they say they're going to do. They make promises, so it seems, but they are very clever and they word it in such a way that it sounds like they're making a promise to do something, but later on they can wriggle out, well, I didn't technically say that. We, you know, we, we said we have no plans to raise uh, the, the rate of VAT. It doesn't mean they're not going to do it. They're saying they've got no plans to do it. Um, it's a kind of technicality. And uh, we're seeing, I guess we're seeing a lot of that at the moment, aren't we, uh, with this present government. But whatever government we'd have, um, every political party does it. They try and find clever ways out of not doing what they say they're going to do and not telling the truth about things. People regularly exaggerate on job applications uh, or on insurance claims people at call centers. Um, you ring them up to try and get your, your internet connection fixed because it's not working, and they say, I'll ring you right back. And you know they're not going to ring you back at all. In fact, you're going to have to make about 30 more calls where they say, we'll ring you right back. We'll get onto that. No, you won't. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, once, I once had about 30 calls, and this person said, we'll ring you, I'll ring you back. And I said, look, I said, I don't think you will, will you? <laughs> Are you accusing me of lying, she said. I said, but look, I don't know you, but I'm just basing it on the 29 others that said they'd ring me back. I'll definitely ring you back. I said, okay, well, that's fine. She didn't. <laughs> what about us? Do we tell the truth? Do we keep our word? Do we say we're going to do something and then do it? Does our yes mean yes and our no Mean no. We follow the one who was called the truth. He said in John 14:6, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." And Jesus points out in this passage that we've read, anything that is beyond that, anything that's not just being upfront and honest and telling the truth, he says, it comes from the evil one, who in John 8:44, is called the Father of lies." We don't want to be following the one who is the father of lies when we claim to be following the one who says he is the truth. Yet, yet it's so easy to follow and slip into the ways of the world, to make something up about ourselves or other people, to make us look good or to make other people look worse, um, to give some exaggeration when we're talking about things. Church leaders are very prone to this. It's very tempting when they talk to other church leaders. For example, church leaders will t- typically say when they meet together, oh, how many people are in your church then? And you go, oh, um, yeah, probably about 400 or so. Um, or whatever to figure it might be. It's always pretty much on the high side. If absolutely everyone who'd been to your church in that year were all together in one meeting, uh, that's how many people are in our church. <laughs> how many people came on your Alpha course? Oh, yeah, we had about 70 people on our Alpha course. You know, Again, if you add a wall up. I was, I was at a church meeting the other year, and uh, there was a guy called Bill Wilson came over. Bill Wilson is, runs a huge children's work um, in America. And uh, one, of the, one of the church leaders there was introducing their uh, children's worker to Bill Wilson. Now, I've known this children's worker, and to be fair, he didn't say it about himself, but it was the church leader who said it. And he introduced him to Bill Wilson and said, oh, here's so-and-so. He's looking after around about 2,000 children in this city. And I just thought, no, he's not. (laughs) Not unless he's looking after a lot more that I don't know about. Because I knew this guy pretty well. Now, to be fair, this children's worker looked pretty uncomfortable. But I thought, why are you saying that? Why say something to make someone look impressive? But it happens all the time. And then, what about doing what we've said we're going to do? What about not keeping our word? And actually, I think this is a huge one for all of us. This is one where we've slipped into the ways of the world so often. For a start, I think we like to keep our options open a lot. I think it's especially true of younger people, maybe in their, in their 20s, teenagers, 20s, and maybe early 30s. Um, people don't like to commit themselves to anything anyway. Now, in one sense, Jesus is saying that's better, You know, if you don't say you're going to do something, actually, you're not bound by it. But if you do say you're going to do something, if you do commit to doing something, often for us, our default position can be, yes, we'll do it, unless something more important comes up, which can easily slip into, unless there's something that comes up which I want to do more. So we can kind of have mental weighing scales. So imagine that we've said that we're going to do something or go somewhere, um, and then someone else, at the, for that same time, invites us to a birthday party or to a wedding. And we think, ooh, hang on, birthday party slightly outweighs um, having a meal with, with these other people. Um, so I'll, we'll go with the birthday party thing and we'll tell the people we were going for a meal with that we can't do it anymore. And it's kind of, we're not going to keep our word, but the birthday party is more important, wedding or even more important. That's just an example. It could be any number of things. We have these mental weighing skills. Do we think we have to honor our first commitment because we've said we're going to do it, or do we think the other event outweighs the first? Um, you, know, you might say, oh, well, I, I would have come and done that, but then someone else has to meet me, and they couldn't do any other time, and so I, I thought, I'll have to go and do them. We can rearrange, can't we? You know, going back on one commitment in order to do something else. We make a decision as though we haven't actually made a commitment in the first place, as though we've never said we're going to do the first thing. Obviously, if you, if you have two options open to you, uh, and you've not said about going to do one thing, making a commitment to do one thing, you're free to choose what you want to do. And so you, you make a decision, you say, oh, that's more important. But once you've made a commitment to do something else, that's a commitment. It kind of makes a bit of a mockery of the word commitment, because it isn't a commitment, it's, uh, it's, oh, I'll do it, and, unless something else comes up. People can use all sorts of excuses, such as tiredness. Oh, I, I would have done that, but I'm feeling quite tired. Um, or bad planning. Oh, I, was, I, I know I said that I would, I would come and help you with that thing, but actually, I've got a lot more work on myself, uh, and I, I, I just didn't get round to it, um, and so I, I need to come and do that. Or we can use our children. Oh yes, I know. I said I would come and do that, but little Johnny has been invited to uh, a birthday party, and you know we really feel we ought to make him go. I'm not speaking about your Johnny. I was trying to think of a name that you didn't. <laughs> He's little. He's not little anymore. I was trying to think of a name that no one had in church. And I was like, oh no, there is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Judas. <laughs> All right, let's let's stick to the point. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> We can even invent spiritual excuses for it. Um, So we can think, we can say, oh yeah, I know I said I was going to go there and do that with you, but actually there's a really big thing on at the church that I want to go to instead. And that's more important, isn't it? No, actually it's more important to do what you said you were going to do. Never mind whether there's something on in the church or actually, you know, God spoke to me about this very thing at some point, so I really need to follow that. Yeah, okay, but you said you're going to do something else, yes, but I had a prophetic word years ago that, uh, that I was to be involved in this sort of uh, ministry, and so I feel I need to, I need to go and, and, and fulfill my destiny in that. No, <laughs> you don't, because you've committed to doing something else. Now, all of this might seem a bit trivial, and uh, you may actually think, well, this sounds actually a little bit legalistic, but I don't believe legalism is about just doing whatever you fancy. Uh, oh, no, it's not. It's definitely not. I don't believe grace is about doing whatever you fancy. Legalism isn't saying you have to honour your commitments. It's actually just integrity that says that you have to honour your commitments. And it's the same principles that are involved with other vows, which we would see as more important generally. For example, the vows we make at a wedding. We make promises before God at a wedding, don't we? Um, to, to be faithful. To love and honour and cherish, and commit to our husband or our wife. And times will come when you won't feel like doing that, when it's not easy to do it. And it would be easy to say, oh, there's other excuses. There's another reason I've got not to honour that. You know, There's something else which has come up which is more attractive, which actually means I don't have to do that. Actually, God has spoken to me about this, and... I don't have to, to honour that commitment. No, you do. Various things make it easier to break commitments, actually. I believe rotors in church life can make it easier to break commitments. So we can be on the rotor to do something. I don't know what it might be. Sing, singing the worship band or playing the worship band or tea and coffee or whatever. You said, yeah, I'll do that. And then you're invited somewhere else for the weekend. And so you think, oh, well, that's okay. Yeah, I was due to sing... Uh, in the worship band, but I'll, I'll get someone else to do it. And so you try and get someone else to do it. And then even if no one else will do it, you think, oh, well, oh, they'll be all right. They'll be all right. They don't need me there. So you made a commitment to do something, but you think, oh, someone else will do it. Um, we think that the main principle is getting the job done. Oh, as long as someone's doing it, that's okay. That's not the main principle. The main thing is being true to your word, honoring your commitment. It looks rather silly uh, when you apply that, that sort of thinking to marriage, doesn't it? Well, I did say I'll, I'll love and honor my wife and be faithful to her, but as long as someone else will do that instead, that frees me up. You think, no, you can't do that. can't have a rotor for it. <laughs> what about... <laughs> what about the offering... <laughs> I think I might have missed something there. What about the offering at, uh, at something like North? Um, we had an email the other, the other week as leaders from, uh, from the guy who organizes North. And uh, he was sending out to all the churches. And he said, there's a number of people, a good number of people, he said, who on the offering day when the buckets came around, when it said, how much are you going to give? People obviously put money in, but some people don't have their checkbook or uh, their money with them. And so they write on a bit of paper, I will give this amount, and they put it in. It's a pledge. It's a pledge before God, because you're going to give this money to God. And he said, there's a a good number of people who haven't actually fulfilled that pledge. They said they're going to give something, but they haven't done. Um, And it could well be that they've forgotten what the Bible says about this sort of thing. For example, in Ecclesiastes 5, 4, it says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And don't protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. I didn't mean to do it. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. Don't say you're going to do something before God and then not do it. Do it quickly. You know, when you get home, straight away, quickly. Otherwise, you know, God will hold you responsible for that. Um, Maybe you get home and you think, oh no, um, money's a little bit tighter than we think. Oh, maybe some bills come in. I know I said I'd give that money, but now I've got this bill and I I need to honor that, so I can't give that money. No, you've made a promise before God. Honor what you say. Don't say it was a mistake. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 could have had exactly the same reasoning. And this is a stark warning about this. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. This was to give to the poor, just to make sure that everyone had enough. So people uh, could voluntarily give, uh, sell their land, and the money was put at the apostles' feet, and then it was distributed, so there was no needy people. So Ananias and Sapphira decide they're going to do this. Not everyone in the church might have done it. So, you know, it's not as though God's judging the people who didn't. They did. But with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought brought back the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Maybe he was thinking, actually, I need to make sure I've got a little bit in hand for something else. But he's promised he's going to give everything. Maybe some circumstances changed. Oh, I need this bit for myself. But he's made a promise. Then Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart... So that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money for yourself that you received from the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? You didn't have to sell it. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You could have said, I'm giving some of it. But you said you were giving all of it. What made you do such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. And then it says, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then the young men carried, came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. And his wife does the same thing. She lies before God. She says, yeah, it's all the money. She dies too. And it says, great fear grips the early church. It would do, wouldn't it? They didn't keep their promise to God. And God showed them just How serious a matter that was. And the early church had a stark warning. This is New Testament. You think, Hang on, I thought God did that sort of thing in the Old Testament. This is New Testament, yeah. Because God is bothered about these things. And fear gripped the church. I would suggest that often it doesn't grip us in this way. Grace doesn't mean you're free to go back on what you have said before God that you are going to do. Psalm 15 and verse four well, it starts, Psalm 15: "Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary, who may live on your holy hill?" And then it gives a list of criteria for people, and in verse four it says, "He who keeps his oath even when it hurts. He who keeps his oath even when it hurts. If you promise to do something, then you keep your oath, even when it hurts." Even when you would think, there are reasons I should be able to get out of this. I'll tell you someone who had a reason to get out of a promise that he'd made. And that was a guy in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Judges, called Jephth- Jephthah. In Judges chapter 11, we read about him. This, was a, this is a sad story. Jephthah was one of the Judges... He was leading his people, God's people. And in chapter 11 and verse 29, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through midspo of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. So he's, he's in war for God. And it says, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. How often have we made or been tempted to make promises to God when we're in a really difficult situation, when something really awful has happened, maybe someone's really sick who we love. God, if you heal that person, I will do so-and-so for you. My life will be yours. I'll do anything you ask how many times have we been tempted to make a promise like that? That's what Jephthah made. In the midst of battle, in a precious situation. Is he going to win the battle? Is he going to lose? Is he going to keep his own life? God, if you give me victory in this, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. Maybe he thought it was going to be some pet or something like that. Verse 34, when Jephthah returned home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? dancing to the sound of tambourines. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you've made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. He knew he couldn't break that. We might, in our way of thinking, think, oh, come on. You know, you made a rash promise. But God is a forgiving God. He'll he'll be all right with that. God, I made a mistake. I didn't realize it would be this situation. I didn't realize it would be this hard. Chapter did not come out with any of those reasons and excuses. He said, I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. And she says, my father, she doesn't persuade him either. My father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do just as you've promised. Now the Lord has avenged your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. And he says, you may go. And he let her go for two months. And she and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. And after the two months, she returned to her father. And he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. He killed his daughter. He killed his only daughter. How his heart must have been breaking for that. I think, why does he do it? Because he sees the importance and the bindingness of making an oath before God. I will do this, God. And he does it. And that story isn't telling us, you know, you can get out of it. It's cautioning us. It's not saying Jephthah was foolish. It's cautioning us not to make rash promises before God in times of difficulty or stress. James in the New Testament stresses some of the the same things as Jesus. In James chapter 5, and verse 12, he's just been talking about various things, like people uh, living in self-indulgence, and uh, he talks to to the people about not grumbling and being patient in the face of suffering. So he said all of that. And then he says this in verse 12, Above all, my brothers... Do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else, yet your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. He's saying the same as Jesus. Don't just say you're going to do things and not do it. He knew the same practices were going on. Don't do that. Above all, above all of these other things that I have said, this is the most important. Do not say you're going to do something and try and get out of it. Keep your word. Have integrity. Let's have a godly perspective on it. Let's feel the weight of some of what is said, something that we might have just thought it's not a big deal. I've got to confess, as I was coming to prepare this message, I was coming thinking, oh, well, okay, what's this about? Keeping your oaths. Ah, that's probably not going to be a big deal for us. And as I've studied and looked at the word of God, I've thought this is a big deal. This is a huge deal for God. This is a huge deal. God's wanting us to get this perspective on it and not just be sloppy about not keeping our promises, not keeping our word. Numbers 23 and verse 18, God speaks this through through his prophet. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. God isn't someone who says, I'll do this and not do it. God keeps his promises. We have many promises from God that we can hold on to. God promises His holy Spirit to us in Acts 239. He says, "The promise is for you and for all your children and, the ch- and all who will hear, who are far off. You'll have the Holy Spirit. We can hold on to that. We can, no, God's promised that. He promises eternal life." In one John um, chapter two,, oh, where's one John disappeared in my Bible. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 24, there it is, Um, it says, um, 1 John 2, 24, see that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you, if it, okay, I've got the wrong passage there, never mind, I will get that sorted out for this afternoon, Um, but (laughs) it's always good when you've got a second chance at it. But he does promise us eternal life. I think we all know that. Um, God promises (laughs) us eternal life. But we can hold on to it. And he promises us that we are heirs of God in Galatians 3 and verse 29. Let's hope I got this one right. Um, He says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And Hebrews 10.23, we've seen, uh, says that he who promised us is faithful. We are children of the king. We're children of God. God is not a God who lies. God is not a God who says he's going to do something and changes his mind and doesn't do it. We are living in the assurance and knowledge of that. We can be confident in that. And we are God's representatives here on earth. We're showing God to the world. We're showing Jesus to the world. We're showing what his character is. We are Christians. We are little Christs representing God. So let's also be those who keep our word and who are truthful and who say yes, and it means yes, who say no, and it means no, who say I'll do that and we do it, who don't exaggerate. Apart from anything else, apart from all of the other things, we want to show this aspect of God's character, that he is trustworthy. They're not going to think God is trustworthy if we're not trustworthy, and as always, and I finish with this, we come back to the same point, as with all of these things, saying, God, help me in this. I know that as I've looked at this, there have been times when I've thought, oh yeah, I remember actually when I did that. God's brought things to mind. Oh, I've been convicted that I've said something and I've, I've not done it for whatever reason. And we need God's help in this. That's why we cast on God in the first place. That's why uh, when Jesus is teaching such things as this, his disciples and other people were saying, so who's going to be saved? Who can keep to that standard? I mean, no, we can't. We're sinful. But God has. Jesus has. We've come into him. We've been forgiven of our sins. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's changing us. He's enabling us to live like him. Let's tell the truth. Let's honour our commitments, even when it hurts. Even when it hurts. Let's pray.